welcome back to the Theology Podcast. That's assuming that this is a return visit for you. Uh, hopefully it is, but if that's not the case, and this is the first show you've ever heard, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've been a professor of philosophy, a real estate investor, and a home improvement contractor, and I've even um, written some books. Anyway, that's enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. All right, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself and the subject for the day, since it's your day. My day. Hi, I'm Tom Price. I teach theology, ethics, and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and the topic of the day is... Straight for the new year. Well, second week of second week of shows in the new year is atheism. <laughs> um, our 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 non-great friend atheism. Um, what I what I want to do is talk about maybe what we could call varieties of atheism. Um, that's not new to me. Uh, John Gray wrote a, a interesting book called the Seven. I believe it's the Seven Types of Atheism. Uh, John Gray uh, is an atheist, but of a peculiar sort. And one of the things that are, is great about that book is he's very honest with the various types and their limitations. Um, for example, when he talks about the first type, which we're probably most familiar with, what he calls the new atheism, he says, um, in the first chapter, I will discuss the so-called new atheism. Um, this contains little that is novel or interesting, and after the first chapter, I will not refer to it again. <laughs> uh, that's great. And, uh, <laughs> that's great. And so I'm going to kind of pivot off of some of what he says and, and then kind of just open the floor for us to kind of enter into it. Um, but a lot, a lot of times I think people confront, you know, modern atheism. Um, they, they usually have in mind these popular notions. Um, we've discussed in previous shows something like the New Atheist, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, um, Christopher Hitchens was another one of these figures, and uh, Sam Harris. Um, and these tend to be figures that, that um, have, have embraced uh, a certain you know, a scientism, as we talked a little bit about in the last show, and see it as kind of a competitive worldview to any kind of what they would call religious interpretation of the world. And so they see kind of religion as just a primitive explanation of things. Science is kind of rid us from that primitive explanation and gives us a kind of uh, mature uh, explanation of things for which we don't need, you know, God or the gods any longer to to talk about yeah, reality. You know, which, which is ironic because I think of that particular strand of atheism is the most juvenile. Yes. <laughs> yes, and, it, and, it, and it's filled, interestingly, I mean, like we, maybe we can start here. It, it's usually filled with the same kind of uh, floor stomping as the, the fundamentalisms it kind of seeks to address. Yeah, I, I actually think the people that move from fundamentalism into atheism are actually the, uh, guilty of the same thought crimes, uh, just in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Now, and as a historian, the thing that I find most bewildering, or even just as, as a person who occasionally engages in a little bit of thinking, um, 
they seem to think that the objections that they're raising are new and novel. Right, right. And they seem to assume that, you know, somehow for for thousands of years, Christians and Jews have studied these texts and have missed some obvious problems and contradictions. <laughs> That's right. And they also seem to have forgotten that all of these problems and contradictions have been addressed rather thoroughly by lots of other thinkers whose names they actually even know. Right. right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And they read, they read, they read the biblical text the same way that a hyper fundamentalist would read the biblical text. All right. So now I'm interested in knowing the other six. Are you going to go through the list, uh, Tom? Yeah, I'll go through the list and then we can kind of maybe go through through variations of each. Um, so the second one that he kind of discusses is what he would call secular humanism. He calls it a hollowed out version of Christian belief in salvation in history. And I think a, a lot of um, a lot of, of this kind of we still feel the ramifications of a lot of this kind of um, you know, what I would call enlightenment inversion of, of Christian beliefs, um, the way in which it adopts a sort of redemptive picture, a salvation picture, a liberation picture uh, that it draws from Christianity and then secularizes it and acts like it was really, you know, the, the only thing that Christianity had about it is it could carry that which was, is better put in a mature, um, you know, secular yeah, um, virgin. Yeah, I'm currently um, I'm currently reading a book by James Burnham um, entitled uh, "The Suicide of the West," uh, which is an older book. It was actually published in the early '60s. And what's kind of comforting and unnerving about it at the same time is that you can read it as like contemporary, except yeah. just uh, the names are different. So instead of you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, you're you're dealing with Hubert Humphrey, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that kind yeah. of stuff, and. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things he he has a chapter on uh, that really I think gets at this very thing is with a chapter on liberal guilt. Hmm. So what he proposes is that is that human beings uh, are dealing with a kind of existential problem, ontological problem when it comes to guilt. It's not just simply personal guilt, yeah, and Christianity yeah. uh, addresses it. Yeah. Uh, but with the rejection of Christianity, the guilt remains. And now there's yeah. a there's a need to sort of self-redeem. And yeah. what drives, uh, you know, liberal guilt is this need for redemption. But uh, it's it 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 pre presents itself as offering genuine solutions to real problems. But that's actually not what it's up to. It's up to assuaging the guilty feelings. That's the real issue. So, it, yeah. so the idea is just do something. In other words, it doesn't matter if it makes it worse. At least yeah. you're doing something. You're demonstrating your worth. You know, the term we use today is virtue signaling. But I, I yeah. think he's, he's right. I think that, that there's a kind of uh, pre-conscious existential kind of a thing that people are, are, are trying to address with liberalism. Now I, I, yeah. I, I'm a, maybe I'm just, well, obviously I'm a Christian. So that this helps, but we know people who are Christians who, who say yeah. they're Christians who seem to suffer from the same complex. Yes. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. 
Well, I, re- I remember, uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul's great term that, you know, we, we're guilty of cosmic treason. I mean, I think that's a that's a comprehensive way of putting what is at the root of our guilt. So it requires this this complete fix, right, that only only God is capable of of, of dealing with. And so, yes, when Christian when when people reject that and, and only and, and then place the burden back on themselves or their own resources, and think that well, you know, kind of like pro, you know, kind of like lib- Protestant liberalism tried to do to, to seek a, a kind of a, a, a social way of um, outworking that guilt in a way that it, it, it kind of that you know the good outweighs the bad, and it never ends up doing it. And then you end up, you also get the other side where people begin to to scapegoat because they need to get the guilt off themselves. So it's better. Okay, I can't fix this through my own goodness and virtue signaling. So I need to blame this other person for whatever went wrong here. Yeah, Rene Girard does a great job of analyzing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, you, you have to take it back a step further, I think, in that the assumption is that people are basically good. Yeah. And the problem is that the world screwed up and a lot of bad things happen. So the question becomes, how do you explain that if people are basically good? Well, the answer is that the problem is found in institutions and systems. Ignoring the fact that these institutions and systems are made made up of people who are basically good. So how how does that happen? But... But then along with that, what you get, I think, in in uh, secular humanism is a recognition of at least some things that are genuine evils. Yeah. Some of the things that they call evil aren't necessarily evil. Some of the things they call yeah. good aren't necessarily good. But they yeah. do identify some genuine evils that they want to address, they want to try to fix, but they want to do it in such a way that denies their personal guilt. Yeah. And that ends up being where the problem is um, in in a lot of ways, because by failing to recognize the issue of sin on on an individual level and therefore in their own lives, they come up with solutions that can't really solve anything. That's right. And and I think, you know, along with this, I think it's what Gray is on to is there there definitely is is, you know, if you had no Christianity, you would have no secular humanism because the humanism that it tries to sell um, is a byproduct of of Christian valuation of the human and and, you know, and and significance of it, valuation of it. And you see this erode, actually, as Christianity starts to to erode. In, in society. And then, then you also have with it is, is this notion, a Pelagian notion, if you will, that, that we have, the, you know, no God's going to save us in, in the humanist creed, right? So we, we have to fall on our own resources. Um, and so, I mean, I get, I get the point that we're not supposed to be inactive. I mean, some people in, in, you know, if, if it's, you know, all up to God, why do anything? I mean, there is that psychology out there sometimes, you know, and so there, there isn't attempts to change situations where sin can actually embed itself and hurt people. And so they see that kind of um, certain kinds of conservatism is basically status quo, not generating the right kinds of changes needed to help, you know, human beings have better lives and, and the like. And so it becomes kind of a a non-religious alternative, if you will, but it, but it, it it's living off of the capital of Christian Christian uh, ethics. So then he moves in the um, John Gray moves in the book to uh, a third kind of atheism, 
which he says makes a religion from science. And we've talked a lot about this before. He calls this evolutionary humanism, mesmerism, which is interesting, <laughs> dialectical materialism, and contemporary t- transhumanism. So maybe that's a good place to, yeah. to kind of unpack a little bit. Yeah, he's 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 kind of uh, put a lot of stuff together there. That yeah, uh, it's interesting to. I I guess my my take is that what you're working to do with this particular category is draw out. Uh, a prescriptive outlook from a descriptive yeah. discipline or enterprise. And there's a kind of uh, self, I guess, uh, deception that's occurring. So, yeah. you know, like, let's think about dialectical materialism for, as an example. So in case folks aren't familiar with it, that's Marxist approach is the inversion of, of Hegel's approach. But basically, you know, Hegelianism is, is uh, ide- idealist, whereas Marxism is materialist. So the idea being that, okay, in the course of human history or in the course of history, there's a kind of working out of inequities, sort of in a kind of, I guess you could say, um, entropic process, um, because everything kind of settles scientifically into a a sort of state of, um, well, stasis or heat death, you know, as a scientist put it. So eventually... If things play out the way the scientists say they will, uh, you know, there will be a point at which uh, we uh, achieve heat death and there's just nothing, you know, uh, you know, happening anymore. <laughs> kind of, but 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 that is as as perfect equality as well. I mean, everything is the same uniformly. And what what Marx does is he takes this pseudoscientific application to human society and moralizes it says this is something we have to pursue this is it goes from being an is to an ought yeah there's your yeah it it, it's a i mean in in a strange way it's the it's the kind of um you know i mean a lot of people when they criticize people committed to natural law theory think this is what's going on that you're saying is uh, you know just because it is the case therefore you know just because nature disposes it itself this way therefore it ought to and and we you know we always kind of show the qualifications and how that's a distortion of 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 what true natural law thinking is but here you do sort of have if you know evolutionary humanism again that that on the first one hand that that whatever happens therefore for the survival of the species um therefore it starts to take on this valuation of good why does it have to take on a good valuation at all i mean this is one of the the points i mean we can we can say that we're disposed to want it to be that way um but we can also be such like we're doing today where we feel like we need to sacrifice a lot of humanity for the the planet right so we can kind of you know move move away from a humanistic kind of evolutionary thinking to to some you know something else um, mesmerism, uh, maybe Glenn. Back. <laughs> yep. um, yeah, mesmerism. Um, mesmer was a one of the people who um, really kind of documented and developed ideas that we would describe as hypnosis. <laughs> and he believed that there were animal spirits <laughs> that were operative in the world and. Um, through the process of mesmerizing or hypnotism, you could 
uh, access and and work with these and so on. I don't remember all of the details. But the point is, the, the reason why he falls into this category is that he believed that what he had was a scientific explanation of human behavior. Yeah. Now, now, was this was this at all related to Christian science? You know, Mary Baker Eddy and her malicious animal magnetism stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, they're all manifestations of something uh, connected to a movement called New Thought in America. Yeah. Now, um, Mary Baker Eddy would deny the influence of this on her thinking, although when you look at her biography, it's kind of hard to take her too seriously on that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Mesmer ties into this and so on. And by the way, New Thought is also a major contributor to what we would describe as the New Age movement, or I prefer to call it New Spirituality. It's also connected in uh, uh, occult stuff and indirectly to neo-paganism. All of these yeah. things all tie together. But in mesmerism, you have a particular pseudoscientific way of understanding all of this. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of fascinating that he he lumps it as a form of kind of atheism and scientism. Um, mm-hmm. And and yet it, it is a window. It helps explain why this could thrive in in, you know, the kind of post enlightenment world where, you know, when they were on the one hand trying to get rid of the supernatural trying to get rid of anything that talked of kind of a divine action within within history um, to replace it with a whole, you know, pseudo-spiritual world that one can enter into, you know. And again, we saw, we've seen, you know, examples, especially in the so-called high enlightened culture societies that, that they were practicing seances and all, all kinds of things, you know, kind of thrived in that, the, the Masons and, and the like. Um, and he, he throws in here, of course, contemporary transhumanism, um, yeah. which is, you know, you know, again, this 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 movement from, you know, he, here is a here is a place at which, you know, humanity, again, is going to have the capacity to to save itself. Right. In some way. Well, it, and direct its own evolution. Yeah, that, yeah. that's the thing. It, it's the it's the uh, entry of the the ought into the is. So yeah. evolution uh, as evolutionists tell us, is an unplanned uh, yeah. process. In other words, there's no intelligence at work in it. Yeah. And now we're going to introduce intelligence yeah. uh, in order to take evolution to the next level, which is just pretty weird when you think about it. If, <laughs> if they were consistent, they would just say, well, yeah. it'll take care of itself if it's going to happen, um, yeah. or maybe not. You know, there, Again, this Getting back to sort of theories of evolution, there was a kind of naive 19th century take on it, which got rid of the creator, but still had purpose uh, at yeah. work, you know, and so higher forms of life and this all, yeah. all of the, the language that, you know, was kind of inherited from a hierarchical understanding of the cosmos is imported into this or sort of syncretized into this uh, this kind of materialism. But I, you know, now you've got a, a situation with kind of the new uh, or neo-Darwinism where that's not present anymore. It's just it just stuff happens, you know, and and whatever. Yeah. And, and there's no there's no real rhyme or reason to it. But but this brings up something I think that's worth reflecting on a little bit uh, in my reading. And maybe I've mentioned this before. If I have just kind of hang with me. 
but in my reading of Hannah Arendt uh, on the origins of totalitarianism, one of the things that she says in that work that really took me uh, by surprise is her analysis of the of, of the Nazis. She she said that they weren't nationalists. Hmm. Now she didn't have the word transhumanist to work with, yeah. but what she described yeah. is transhumanism. Yeah. yeah. The, and that's what we're getting at here. They wanted to take, they, of course, they didn't have gene splicing. They didn't have the various technologies and the subtle, uh, you know, so, sort of subtleties, of, you know, what, that we have today with regard to uh, our knowledge of genetics. But they had a, they had an, an intuition that if you yeah. could control the process of, of, you know, reproduction, you yeah. could create higher forms of humanity. That yeah. was their ideal. Yeah. yeah. You know, and actually any cattle herder knows that that's true. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it was always seen as being uh, off limits to apply this to human beings. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and Until the eugenics movement, which right. yeah. was really centered in the United States. Yeah. 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 And, th and I think that that's another thing. There, there are a lot of things that she brought out in that book where she made that connection. She, she was essentially saying that the Nazis had learned some things from us in America. Yeah, well, that comes out at the Nuremberg trials. Basically, they said, look, th these were the things your own people were advocating. Well, what we did is put them into practice. Right. That, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it, it, it has been going on. And I mean, it's and now they're making it, you know, available to, you know, public consumers. I mean, even with the kind of stuff they're trying to do with children and, and alterations and, and, and the like, to think that we can somehow um, improve upon <laughs> Um, what we've been endowed with through technique and psychological, you know, manipulation, um, and 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 even, yeah, and, even I, I, and even technology, physical technology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like the word technique there because that's a word that Tolkien uses regularly uh, as the evil of magic. Right. That yeah. it relies on technique and things like that to exert control over people or nature. Yeah. And what we're doing with transhumanism is exactly that. Tolkien saw magic, of course, as evil, as distinct from enchantment, which was positive. Yeah, the guy who really sort of tipped me off to this was Jacques Ellul. Uh, yes. Jacques Ellul, uh, in his uh, you know, analysis, says that technology and technique are really the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and Tolkien adds magic, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it's interesting here when he's when he's talking about this is kind of one of the one of the types of atheism. It, it's how how it has been ripped from, of course, the the core transcendent vision of of the classical world and Christianity in particular. Um, once it has been unmoored from that, it runs loose. Now, one of the things he he says at the beginning of this book, which is very interesting, is he says the the uh, even in the in the whole hellenic and and the greek philosophical world you didn't have the equation of knowledge with the good the way christianity did um and, and so he thinks he says that this actually gets picked up and absorbed by all these kinds of atheism um but the problem is it doesn't have any any kind of you know proper good other than the knowledge itself um, guiding it. So knowledge not grounded in the good um, becomes the good itself, if you will, and, and it becomes undirected um, or directed towards, um, un, you know, well, it would go places we don't want to go. Let's put it this way. <laughs> well, and actually, this is, the Christianity has been well aware of this for 
centuries, this yeah. is the whole essence of the the Faustus myth yeah. or legend. Yeah. You know, yeah. who sells his soul for knowledge and he gains yeah. knowledge, but he literally loses his soul. So, In a lot yeah. of ways, we're we're our culture is living Dr. Faustus. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we, we you know, you can really see how, um, you know, I think I mean, a few years back, the kind of evolutionary humanism was kind of, you know, it was in a lot of the, the literature. It was almost the way a lot of, you know, Christians were sort of coming up ways of of connecting a Christian reading of that. Um I, I think was it Teilhard de what yeah. was his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that this the, the Roman Catholic Chardin. Yeah, yeah. We need we need you to help us with those French names there. French word. Teilhard de Chardin. Yeah, I mean, he really popularized this in kind of Catholic thinking, gave it a, a sort of. Uh, uh, you know, baptized it in, in, in a kind of Catholic view, but, but you have had a lot of this stuff spilling over, but, and, and there was a lot of attraction in the kind of intellectual Christian circles of finding ways to, um, take what they found as, as valuable insights from these secular reinterpretations of, of Christianity, and then kind of make Christianity more palatable by trying to, reinterpret it in, within those parameters. And I think this is where you had your debates, I mean, especially within, you know, the Roman Catholic world between, you know, with, with modernity and, and leading to Vatican II. And then we're, we're kind of seeing it course, unfold everywhere in the Protestant world. You know, the interesting thing about this is if you read Dom Holland, uh, Dominion, Right. What he points out is that Christianity created the modern world, created our system of ethics and just sort of the way we see the world. And the irony is you get secular humanism coming out of that. And then this next series of movements coming out of secular humanism. And you've now got Christianity trying to catch up yeah. somehow with those when, in fact, we're at the root of all of it. Yeah. And what these things are 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 declensions away yeah. from yeah. Uh, from what we we start with. Yeah, yeah, I think that one of the things that we also see uh, kind of as I think a more healthy response is the uh, the resourcement uh, movements, uh, mm -hmm. both in Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, returning to the fathers, you know, my first encounter with this was Tom Odin back in yeah. the eighties. When, mm -hmm. when Tom Oden, you know, went from being a really a kind of a liberation theology yeah. guy to let's yeah. get back to the creeds guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, he, that was a, a watershed, I think, for a lot yeah. of folks. And um, and I think a lot of healthy things are happening, but it's going to take a long time for this to filter through all of the mm -hmm. churches and and, you know, the nooks and crannies of the Christian world. Uh, it took a long time for us to get here. It, this didn't happen overnight. I, yeah. I think it's going to take a while, centuries, yeah. to get worked yeah. out in the other direction. Yeah. Well, and, and I, you know, one of the things you see, you know, I think one of the fascinating things that you do see, I mean, studying something of the history of it is just the the, the way the way Christians do lose sight of what is theirs and start to run with those distortions as if, as, as if that was the genuine article, you know, so to where eventually you have evangelicals working off of methodologies of, you know, of within the polarities, you know, or within the parameters set up by the enlightenment, 
Um, and I mean, so afraid that it's going to be, you know, written out of the, the public realm of intelligibility if it doesn't basically express itself within these parameters. And, uh, and then in doing that, when it finally sort of comes of age and adopts these methodologies, it becomes unimportant and insignificant. And yeah. it's actually... Yeah, we always, we, you, you know that uh, a movement has run its course when the evangelical church jumps on the bandwagon. You know, you know it's <laughs> yeah. over at that point. You know, we mentioned earlier the existentialist. I, you know, one of the things that encourages me when it comes to, you know, postmodernism is the fact that, you know, back when I was in school in the, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, the post, you know, the, the ex- existentialism was like hot. It was cool. Yeah, it was the thing yeah. everybody was into. And uh, now it's sort of like, who are those guys? Uh, yeah. Jean-Paul, what's his name? <laughs> Sartre. Uh, Sartre or, what, what, wasn't Jean-Paul one of the popes? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, now, the, the, the thing is, as an intellectual movement, postmodernism is dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, if you if you look at a you know uh, if you take a, a course in an English department on the postmodern novel, everything they're reading is at least thirty years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but what's happened, and people have called this different things. Um, you you've got uh, you know some people call it amateur postmodernism. I've run into that term. Uh, John Stone Street over at Breakpoint calls it a postmodern mood. Uh, what's happened is that elements of postmodernism have so seeped into the consciousness of people that even though postmodernism itself as an intellectual movement is dead, people still think in terms of those categories. Yeah. 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 That's the problem. Yeah. And yeah. we're going to live with that for a while. I'm afraid that, you know, you know, when, when we think about how does God argue? Well, when God speaks, things happen. God argues with history. God argues with like pestilence and war. <laughs> he's, he's like, you, and weather. That's right, that's right, that's right. You want that? Well, we're going to give it to you good and hard. You'll see how you like it. <laughs> yeah, that's actually sort of an interesting point that, that uh, someone I was talking to mentioned. He said, you know, if you look at scripture, you find that weather, natural disasters, and things like that are acts of God, yeah. <laughs> much like the way they talk about them in insurance right. policies. Yeah. <laughs> but those are acts of God often in response, not always, but often in response to human behavior. Right. <laughs> and yet we do not even consider the possibility that that happens anymore. Yeah, in biblical yeah. terms, in biblical terms, that is the first thing we should be thinking of. Yeah. That is the normal interpretation. Right. Yeah. I remember I, I was in the Northridge quake in Los Angeles. It was it 94, 92. I can't remember. But anyway, um, I was flying out of Los Angeles after the quake. I mean, and, and driving to the airport was kind of a crazy experience because, you know, shattered glass everywhere, huge plumes of flame coming up from the gas lines. It was, it was like you were in Beirut or something. And I remember flying out that morning and having listened to the television reporters describe the event, they were shaken themselves. You could, you could, you could hear the tremor in their voices. And I thought to myself, if this can't get our attention, what will? In other words, none of, none of the people in the, in the media, we're talking about what you just described, Glenn. Maybe there's uh, something God is trying to say to us here in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> that, that just yeah. was well, never entertained. Yeah, well, my favorite example of that is when the Lutheran Church was voting on whether or not to ordain um, homosexuals. 
the church that they were meeting in got hit by a tornado. <laughs> they didn't get before, the message. <laughs> just before the vote. And, and they talked about this. Maybe this is a sign for God. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, right, right. You know, I mean. It, it, yeah. Well, and, you know, and that, it, it, one of the, I mean, you see, I mean, there's, besides the, the kind of issues of, of, of weather, it's, it's also the, you know, the, the falling of a civilization, the way right. in which politics is taken over by that, which is the, you know, the judgment on a people when, when the political system is actually given over. Um, you read the Old Testament constantly. There is this, you know, your, your land is being taken from you. You're being ruled and oppressed by someone else when you're, you know, so there definitely is this deeper connection between um, the human being and their 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 uh, moral relation and religious relation to God, um, and and the the reality that can become the byproduct of of you know getting out of sync with that right, not honoring God above all things. I mean, you want to heal the world um, in all of its problems is is a people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, body, and strength first, and love their neighbor as themselves. Right? They, they, those balance the right way. <laughs> Um, are going to have the kind of consequences in which flourishing um, takes place. Um, you don't do that. Guess what? There are all kinds of consequences, and, and some of those are those the, those direct acts. Um, and you, you you think about, I mean, what happens to a human being when they're confronted by something like a tornado coming? I mean, are you ever aware of how fragile you are and how much no, how how you're nothing? Um, you think of the, the story in the scripture when they're, uh, the disciples are out on the boat and Jesus is sleeping and the storm comes up. And it is what a great, you know, oh, is God not sleeping, right? Um, when the storm comes up and, and, and actually, you know, he, he, the, the, Jesus eventually, peace be still, and they grow increasingly more afraid, right? When they actually see the one who controls everything, not just the storm itself. And, and really, I think, like you said, we can get be afraid of the storm itself because oftentimes we don't confront directly the reality, the one who actually controls the storm itself. Whenever, um, I, th whenever I think about that story, I think about Rembrandt's uh, Jesus on the Sea of Galilee yeah. and the fact that that was stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And I wonder, will we ever get it back? I actually <laughs> saw it in person before it was stolen. It's a, it was, it was uh, impressive in, in just about every way. It was very large, uh, a very large canvas. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of despair.com is, <laughs> is, is a website that does demotivation posters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was given uh, a uh, demotivator calendar one year, which came with a poster that had a picture of a tornado on it. <laughs> and it said, uh, when the winds of change blow hard enough, even the most trivial things can become deadly projectiles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a great, there's a great one that I remember where it was like this guy was playing chess and he's moving a pawn and it said, <laughs> sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> you are the pawn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I could go on and on about demotivators, but I think we should probably get back to atheists. There's a connection there somewhere. Oh, there is, there is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where, and I think in the book, a lot of times that's where he's, where he is heading. Well, the next, next group he says, um, and they, these overlap somewhat, but, um, is the modern, um, atheism that is the modern political religions from, J uh, Jacob, Jacobinism, 
through communism, Nazism, um, to contemporary evangelical liberalism is what he calls it. Oh, really? Yeah. And I would say, you know, wokeism is a kind of a variant of that. I would like to understand what he was implying with evangelical liberalism. Yeah. And and because I haven't gotten through that chapter, I've been working through this book. I haven't gotten through that chapter. So that may be one we, we need to revisit, but I can definitely see where he would go with that. Um, yeah, I don't think he means what probably comes to mind for many of our listeners, kind of our woke brothers and sisters in the evangelical world. I think he's probably just thinking about a kind of aggressive con- sort of proselytizing liberalism. Yeah. And, and I think he is kind of, uh, you know, again, I, I, I could be corrected when I, when I work through that part, but I do think it, I do think it's a recognition that, that that kind of liberalism even though it owes itself to kind of Christianity and monotheism is the way he puts it. Um, it, it has, it has evacuated. Well, it, it has basically left all of the proper theological setting and meaning for that, that comes with Christianity. So it is, it is a, you know, it, it defines it very differently. And evangelical liberalism is very much just liberalism at that point. Yeah. Um, I, I feel obligated to point out that uh, Jacobinism has as its roots a guy by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Yeah, there you just, go. Just <laughs> need to put this in. <laughs> right, right. No, that's 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 important. And and well, I mean Rousseau, as we know, we've we've visited enough, but he, you know, he he sort of creates his his own kind of redefinition of the the creation account, right? Um, and, and this, and, you know, right here, you have this move towards a alternative to Christianity or, or, you know, a better insight into its impulses. Well, this gets me thinking about denominations. So he's describing seven kinds of atheism or seven varieties. And I, and I can't help but think that maybe this is a parallel to what we see in theism, where we have different varieties of theism. Yeah, um, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're in some sense dependent upon a certain set of assumptions that they share in common, uh, but they are different uh, emphases. One of the things, you know, that I'm working on, as you know, is a book on totalitarianism. And, and, and all of these things are in play with regard to totalitarianism, but it's hard to provide a neat and yet comprehensive uh, sort of analysis, because there are so many things going on that seem to, uh, at one level, contradict other parts of what we see. And nevertheless, there is, a, at the same time, a kind of harmony. So let's think about Rousseau and his emotivism and compare mm-hmm. that to, say, the cerebral kind of uh, juvenile, angry uh, atheism of the new atheists. How are they this? How are they compatible? Well, they are yeah. at a pretty fundamental level. They're kind of working on, off the same script in a lot of ways, but with uh, enough difference that you could say that they are different things, but uh, part of a, a, a common outlook. Uh, I suppose. Yeah, they 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 share core commitments, and and I think that's what he's on to with contemporary evangelical liberalism. He, you could, he could probably even define that as like the religious right in the sense that it is a, it, it is a, it is within that same set of commitments that you would have a secular, secular atheistic religions. It shares enough of the commitments the same way. 
Yeah, you know, that when he, when you talked about evangelical liberalism, that is exactly what came to my mind. There the, yeah. is, you know, the religious right. Yeah. Because although we don't typically use the language that way, liberalism yeah. in its traditional meaning, classical liberalism is American conservatism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is again, you know, this book I'm working through, The Suicide of the West by James Burnham, he gets into that. He talks about this fascinating transition that occurs in liberalism. Uh, that occurs in the late 19th century uh, in which there is a shift from uh, seeing the government as the primary threat to yeah. the means by which the primary threat is, uh, you know, sort of defeated. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and so you, 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 you see this transition, um, but you're right. There is this kind of larger kind of atomistic individualist, uh, and as yeah. you like to say, voluntarist, Tom, kind of dimension yeah. to things. I've thought, yeah. I've thought a number of times about uh, those kind of brands of, event, of of Protestantism that have done best in America. They mm-hmm. tend to be the, the ones that are most kind of uh, in harmony with the, the larger sort of structure or trajectory of American culture. Take, for example, uh, you know, and we've got a lot of friends who are Baptists, but there's something about, there's something anti, in their Mm anti-clericalism, they're also anti-establishment, they're also anti, you know, uh, sort of uh, um, elitist, you know, they're, you know, there's, although those things are, you know, kind of part of the American story as well. Think about Pentecostalism and its, its emphasis on experience and emotions yeah. That's very much in harmony yeah. with the American outlook. Uh, now, what are the what are the sort of the expressions of Christianity that have a really hard time here? Well, Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, <laughs> it has a real hard time. You know, it's, yeah. you, you got to be a really kind of uh, esoteric, kind of uh, unique, uh, sui generis uh, kind <laughs> of person. You know. It, to find orthodoxy, although, although it's, making, it's making a lot of grounds, <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah. But still, it's it's a tiny minority of the larger yeah. Christian world in America. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Well, and and you know, one of, I think that's one of the that, that that that's interesting in its own way. I, I think, and and for good or for bad, you know, or for better, or for worse. Sorry, um, because I mean, you think. I mean, you think, uh, you know, Baptist worlds, I mean, I grew up in a lot of that. And, and on the one hand, I remember kind of the old school Baptist world that did have some kind of connection to its own tradition and traditions. Um, and, and it's, you know, a strong emphasis on, on passing those down. But it tended to do it in a very strong authoritarian way because it, it needed to do from generation to generation and keep other voices out. Um, but then you had this kind of shift to the purpose driven world in which, OK, how are we going to how are we going to stay alive in a world that, you know, will not embrace that kind of strict sectarianism? Um, and so what we end up doing is kind of refashioning um, the patterns of worship and life to kind of mimic or, or make themselves palatable to the, the you know, the culture. Um, and then we end up becoming like the culture and then we become having no, you know, real critical edge on the culture. Then we become basically defenders of the culture that we were supposed to, you know, um, convert. And so, 
you, you do have, they, they, they thrive in the way that, you know, certain kind of businesses have been able to stay in business, you know, by adjusting to the times. Yeah. Well, I, I've argued for a long time that there's nothing less relevant than a church that tries to be relevant. Yeah. And Oz Guinness wrote a wonderful book called Prophetic Untimeliness. Yeah. Um, and the core idea there is that the only message that is eternally relevant is an eternal message. It is a message yeah. that isn't blown about by the winds of culture and the yeah. demands of the current age. And our job is to be presenting eternal truths, not things that are perceived as being relevant to the culture. Because the only way to address the things that are relevant to the culture is through the lens of that which is eternal. It's interesting on that point, because, and I think I've mentioned this before, but there, there, there is a, a moment, a historical moment in evangelical, in the, well, in Christianity in America, where Karl Barth actually visited the U.S. one time in his life. Um, and, you know, he had a lot of fans here, but he had a lot of critics. And he was um, speaking at an event, I think, at University of Chicago, to which Carl um, F.H. Henry was attending. And Carl was not a huge, I mean, he, res, you know, respected Bart as a scholar, but didn't like his his approach to things. And um, and when he had his chance to ask Carl Bart a question, he said, this is um, Carl um, F.H. Henry from Christianity Today. And Carl Bart's response to him was, you mean Christianity of yesterday? <laughs> and Carl Henry, of course, won the moment. He goes, no, I mean Christianity the same yesterday, today, and forever. <laughs> but I think Carl Bart actually had his finger on the pulse because we see where Christianity today ended up going. Yeah. Because of the emphasis on the today, it wasn't on the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it became a trend follower um, and it, you know, it, it, it loses sight of the, the, um, you know, the larger transcendent vision that, um, that keeps Christianity within a parameters of being able to define it from age to age. Right. Right. So how many, how many have we gotten through? Is it five? Uh, we, uh, we, that was four. These next ones we can do kind of briefly. Um, uh, fifth is the atheism of God haters, such as Marquis de Sade okay. and Dostoevsky's fictional character, Ivan Karazimov, and, and then William M. Empson, um, a, a writer he draws off of a lot in this book. Interesting. So these, these are people who, at one and the same moment, affirm the existence of God because they hate him. <laughs> or is yeah. it just that they hate the idea? I think they, yeah, they're repulsed by God in any sense of the word. So they're atheists by defiance, maybe is the way. Yeah. They will refuse to worship any kind of God to the point they will not give, grant God any existence. Yeah. yeah. I, I've heard this described as God doesn't exist and I'm mad at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we see a lot of that with, with the whole notion of, you know, the way theodicy is is put out there. Um, in many cases, it, it's, you know, if there is a God, why are there so many, you know, suffering children in the world? And, it, you know, well, if there isn't one, why would that really, I mean, other than just for sentimental reasons, be a problem? Well, I've, yeah. I've often wondered whether or not that's just a, a red herring uh, when that yeah. particular objection is, is raised. In other words, this is a person that's made a commitment is searching for a justification. I think... Uh, 
I think, though, you know, a lot of the things you talk about, Tom, concerning uh, a faulty understanding of God, in other words, they've rejected a God, uh, they hate a God that doesn't exist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but I wonder, too, whether or not there's something to be said for anger here. And, I, and here's what I mean. Um, births tend to be bloody, messy processes with lots of yeah. uh, screaming and yeah. uh, tears um, yeah. and blaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I, I remember uh, Bill Cosby, yeah. who, of course, has <laughs> fallen into disrepute, but he was still a funny guy for for all of that. And he, he was talking about his wife uh, giving birth and looking at him and, and, and blaming him. <laughs> I, I, one, one of the great lines was, and she told everybody in the room that my parents weren't married. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you, if you know what I'm getting at, is that sometimes we'll say, well, we don't want to offend anybody. Uh, we don't want anybody to get angry when perhaps anger is precisely the thing the person needs to go through in order to yeah. get to the other side of it. Yeah, well, and there is, there is. I mean, I, I think David Bailey Hart's written on this when he was talking about a lot about Ivan Karazimov. I mean, the the character in Dostoevsky's work. And and remember, there's an issue of a, ch a child getting sick, you know, and this notion of, you know, I think it, it's uh, Ivan's response that, you know, because a child can get sick or lose its mother or, or something along these lines, I, whatever notion of a God there is, I cannot see this God as good, right? So I cannot see, you know, if one has the capacity to, to, to you know, create something in which this wasn't a possibility um, and then doesn't do it and causes this kind, you know. So, I mean, there, there is, you know, again, there, there are theological issues going on there, but, that, but you're right, from, from someone who isn't able to antenna those theological issues, they do lash out against that which should be seen as the giver of a gift towards that which is the giver of all this pain and suffering and well, hurt. Well, I, I kind of think about it uh, uh, somewhat differently. It's, it's still in mm -hmm. harmony with what you're saying, Tom. You're familiar with Kubler-Ross's five stages of death and dying. One of the stages yeah. is anger, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. What, what a person is leaving behind is a life to begin a yeah. new life, and there's a yeah. death that occurs, you know, we die, yeah, yeah. you know, with yeah. Christ. So there's something that there's something that dies that we've yeah. loved and held on to. And we are angry that this is dying. Yeah. Um, even as we're being introduced to a new life. Uh, I, yeah, I think yeah. that that's kind of what I, so when, when it comes to the work of an evangelist, sometimes yeah. the work of it, we have this idea that the, that the evangelist is just greeted with smiles and just yeah, warm yeah. hugs and thanks yeah. and, but often the best evangelist is the person who can confront the anger and, and yeah. endure it and continue yeah. to speak the truth yeah. and love yeah. while they're being shouted at. Because why, yes. are the, why is the other person shouting? It's because their conscience is also shouting at them, this is yeah. right, and they're trying to drown it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say, by the way, these um, atheists who are angry with God overlap considerably with a number of the other categories. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's right. And and I think the other categories are really the fruits of that. And and I think there is a lot going on here. And yeah, that was a good good nuance to it, Chris, because I do think that there is that too, having to confront ourselves in the light 
um, is probably the most heinous things for us prior to rebirth, right? Um, This sense in which, you know, having to having to look at that ugliness in the face of pure holiness um and 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 i do think sometimes that gets i mean i often do talk about the the kind of the alternative competitive god but i do think we can't skip over the fact that also also confronting people when it comes to truth and beauty and goodness and and anything like that is that it, it it pours light on into the darkness and the darkness can't outrun that light and and that that that, where that can't be countenanced you get a decide you know um and 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 look at the ramifications of a life and look at the what he does to other people you know that that there is a certain kind of pleasure in pain you know and and this this seeking this kind of deeper torture to find some kind of deeper pleasure it it is it's a perversion and probably it's it's uh utmost sense um and culturally i think we're getting there too i mean i think the way the 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 sexual exploitation of children and and the moving of of things in this you know this way of you know chopping and cutting is is starting to get into this this kind of god hatred territory yeah. Dasad actually argued that the greatest pleasure comes from violating the greatest number of taboos, yeah, and right. the most serious taboos. But, but there's an interesting corollary to this. There's an article on pornography uh, that was, I think it was in the American Historical Review hmm. uh, years ago, in which they argued that the things that show up in pornography are the things that are considered most, well, taboo. Um, or evil within society. Hmm. And thus, you know, initially pornography, you know, when you're looking at the old, you know, the earliest versions of published pornography, it's just simply about sex. Yeah. With the 18th century, there is this movement that says that that pain itself is a, is the greatest evil and is therefore, in a sense, obscene. Hmm. And so what you see happening is a shift in pornography toward obscenity, toward what was obscene in the minds of the people, which means you see Desaad coming up and you see a rise in sadistic stuff um, emerging. And if you follow by that standard, that idea that the things that are considered the greatest obscenities, it's really interesting to look at the statistics that are published by somebody like Pornhub uh, where, you know, you'll see, I haven't seen one in a few years, but they show what are the things that people search for. And the general sense I've gotten, again, I haven't seen this in a few years, but the general sense I've gotten is it's, it's harder stuff. It's more, um, it's more sadistic. It is more, um, incest oriented. It's a whole host of things of that sort. Yeah. Hmm. So we're getting kind of close to time here, Tom. Have we got two more to go? Two more. I can I can blend them into each other because they are close. And these would be the two that John Gray kind of would, you know, see he has more of affinity for. Um, the uh, six he calls the atheisms of George Satiana and Joseph Conrad, which reject the idea of a creator God without having any and without having any piety towards humanity. In other words, they don't see any point. I mean, you, you get rid of the, uh, you get rid of God. You don't need to have a special privilege for humanity. 
And then seventh and last, the mystical atheism of author Schopenhauer and the negative theologies of Spinoza and 20th century Russian Jewish fideist uh, Leo Shestov, all of which point to a different, uh, to a God that transcends any human conception, like a just a pure mystical negation, like some, some type, like Derrida in many ways, and uh, his kind of twisted postmodern sense, this yeah. kind of uh, pure negation. Yeah, Schopenhauer... Uh you know, had that kind of Buddhist Eastern uh, kind of spin yeah. uh, with, you know, pure will. He was kind of a forerunner wow. of Nietzsche um, yeah. and pretty kind of depressed guy. You know, if, I don't know if you've ever read any of his aphorisms or his, you know, they're, they're actually pretty yeah. good. Um, yeah. He was a he was actually a fan of Baltasar Gracian and um, <laughs> you know the uh, Jesuit uh, whose you know short pithy sayings were so I guess Machiavellian <laughs> in in terms of their uh, you know kind of getting to the real root of human motivation and and so mm-hmm. forth that he felt like uh, it was a shame that the guy was a Catholic but I, I guess. Uh, there's something to that that I find uh, of the of the of the different forms that he identifies. That probably the last one that he identifies with is probably the the least offensive to me. Or yes, uh, yeah. th- I could actually ha- have a beer with that guy if you get yes. my drift. You know, we it, it, I would need to maybe take a bath afterward, or maybe uh, go, go and visit <laughs> yeah. somebody that it was uh, genuinely upbeat and positive, but. You know, there's a sense in which it seems to me that that is a kind of dipping into uh, a hopeless uh, but realistic assessment of human fallenness. If you yeah. if you get my drift. Well, you know, the one that intrigues me is the one before that, number yeah. six, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, because in a very real sense, it's an inversion of Christian um, ethical theory, yeah. um, which fundamentally is rooted in love of God. And because human beings are made in the image of God, love of neighbor immediately follows. That's why those two commandments are paired. Yeah. Um, and in fact, elsewhere in Scripture, you will find Jesus and Paul both saying that um, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself is the essence of the law. All of the law and the commandments are are subsumed under loving your neighbor. But the reason for that is because your neighbor is made in the image of God. So love of God is primary. Yeah. What they're saying is that if you get rid of love of God, there's no need to love your neighbor. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It is. It, it is, in fact, exactly the negation of the foundation of Christian ethics. Yeah, I find that, like I said, I find that rather intriguing what they're doing there. Although yeah. I do agree with Chris, it'd be more fun to have a beer with number seven. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think you, I mean, one of the, I think one of the things Gray is onto here is getting rid of these kind of um, these flowery versions of atheism that don't look at the consequences of of really where this ends up if if you if you take seriously what athe you know atheism entails so if you if you do reject certain kinds of things and you do embrace certain kind of things you don't get to have the you, you don't you don't 
you don't get to claim that a part of the the um, coherence of your picture is such that it can underwrite a humanistic vision or something that is is really has has a human being as deserving any sort of piety. Well, you know, it also makes me wonder whether or not such a person just simply despairs for something that maybe he actually longs for. And yeah. like, in all of the yeah. other versions, I have a I have a sense that there's kind of an alternative agenda that's being pursued, um, yeah. something that's maybe not adequately self-aware. Whereas yeah. in this last one, I think we have someone who is self-aware, has yeah. a f- full understanding of the implications, perhaps wishes that the Christian God were real, yeah. but can't bring himself to believe it, if you get my drift. Yeah, I, I, I think, and, and I think that's why he's, he wants to say there is this kind of mystical, tra- and, you know, he owes it to Russian Jewish fetus, like, you know, Leo Shestov and Spinoza, which, you know, my hunch is maybe he, he has a Jewish background himself. I, I don't know enough about his, his history. Yeah. Um, but what, what, what you get there is, is a way of, I guess for them, him not having to, um, yeah, not not having to embrace something with all the baggage that comes with it, and can still try to put, and, and can also see through the you know the kind of nonsense that has come with with attempts to get rid of religion and get rid of this. He sees the pursuit of religion as absolutely valid because it's about meaning, and like Glenn's point in the last show, and similar to way myth functions and and in logos. And so he said, you know, this is something, you know, science, scientism, atheism can't get rid of. He goes, on the other hand, I'm not trying to convert anybody to my position, <laughs> right? This isn't something about me saying that, you know, that this is, you know, he, he, I've got a, a meaning frame that I need to pursue conversion to you. You know, he, he sees it silly for an atheist to try to convert anybody. <laughs> yeah, it's more, he, it's more or less a ditch you fall into, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. And he and he also talks about it's interesting in the in the first chapter when he's discussing the new atheism and he's talking about th- the way they follow almost a, a you know, a, a, they, they adopt that Christian notion that knowledge is good, um, which wouldn't have come from their own assumptions. And, and, and that, you know, having a certain kind of clear, true view of reality um, is important. And he sees that he sees it first as undermined by their own commitments, because truth wouldn't have been aimed for by by um, chance and survival, you know, without there being a right. kind of a, a tell us. And so what he gets at there is he says, he says, in that case, illusion may be better for us for our own survival. Yeah. And so he says, why are they making all of this uh, aim to clear religion from its illusions if from their own understanding, illusion may be more valuable for survival than not? And then that brings a good question up. We pursue truth. Um, for something higher than merely survival. It's, yeah. it's because we have a transcendent vision. Yeah, why would you want yep, to live that, in them? Yeah, that actually echoes uh, Plantinga's argument um, against, uh, well, he argues that uh, Darwinism and materialism, when you combine them, they're defeaters. You know, they, <laughs> they, you know if materialism is true, Darwin, it's a defeater for Darwinism. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it parallels uh, a similar argument by C.S. Lewis and, and other people. Um, you know, he's absolutely, you know, he's absolutely right there. I think he, I suspect he's read these guys. Yeah. 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 The good yeah. ones tend to, to do that. Say we should we should wrap up. 
it's uh, got that to be about that time. <laughs> hey, that was great. That was a great topic, and uh, I think I think that uh, listeners are going to really get a lot out of this show, kind of hearing the description of these seven types and our responses. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really appreciate your support. Uh, if you'd like to support us in a financial way, that would be great. Uh, we have expenses. And you can do that by either going to our Patreon page and becoming a patron uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, there are a number of people who support us that way, and, the, and those uh, gifts do uh, address the cost for producing the show. You can also support us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Uh, there are even people who kind of chase us down and give us money. Uh, they go to a lot of work to do it, too. <laughs> and we appreciate those folks. Anyway, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.